Uh, it's great to be here this morning and to really be worshipping with you as a church this morning. Uh, I'm going to read a passage from Scripture, which is from Luke chapter 15. This is a very famous passage. I'm going to read the first couple of verses and then from verse 11. So if you've got a Bible, please follow along with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then we're going to go to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise, go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose, came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, in Greek that's a long, long, long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I'm no longer, I'm before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf because he's received him. Uh, bring the fattened, sorry, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And, he, and he, the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, 
and all that, I ha- uh, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was, of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Can I just pray as we go and enter into looking at this God's Word together? Father, this is an amazing story. This is a very familiar story to many of us in church. But Lord, I know in my own heart and I know in our hearts we can miss what you're wanting to say to us because we think we know it. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning, open my mouth this morning to say what you want to say, not what I want to say, what you want to say. And I pray that you'd show us the kind of father that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. So um, again, thank you so much for welcoming uh, me. It's just really, really exciting to be here this morning. But I wanted to tell you about two people that I've met recently. Uh, I came across um, a woman called Jill, came to me, um, demoralized and rejected. She, this time she said, I've gone further than I've ever gone before. Her fantasy life had overflowed into adultery, and she couldn't believe she'd been so stupid. And she came to me with her marriage on the line as a Christian and a leader in the church, and she was going, I don't know if there's any hope for me. I wonder if I can be forgiven for this. What if anybody else found out? Everybody else would brand me with my sin as a failure before everyone else. A bit later, her husband, we'll call him Frank, came to me, and he was really well-versed in Scripture. He was a leader in the church. He always gave the right answers in the Bible studies. He seemed to have his life completely sorted. He was talented. He was competent. He served faithfully in the church. But when he came to me, all he could talk about was everything that was wrong with his wife. He produced Bible verses to show me why he was contemplating divorce at this point, and I could not fault his logic at all. But there was just something that was not quite right about Frank. It wasn't just a hurting and betrayed spouse in front of me. There was something more going on in his heart. There was a bitterness. There was a harshness. There was a resentment. There was a coldness. And I think... My experience tells me that in every church in Hong Kong, including mine and yours and every other one, there are people like Frank and Jill. And I don't just mean with their particular circumstances, with their particular situation. I also mean in terms of the heart underneath of what's going on. Many of us actually struggle with those very same questions of whether God can forgive us, or actually whether we should get our rights. And often it leaves us spiritually dry as a desert. People like that never experience the joy that Christ wants to bring them. And as we look at what it means to live, and you're going through this series of looking at what kingdom living is, I want us to look at what does it mean, how do we get a joy and a life and a revived heart, even in the midst of COVID, where sometimes it can feel like you're in a desert. So we're going to look at this parable. 
I said, very famous. And this parable is actually the last of three parables that Jesus was telling. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable finally of the lost son. And Jesus was telling these story to, uh, as you look in verse 1 and 2, to two kind of groups of people. The first are the tax collectors and the sinners. These were the corrupt, greedy, immoral people. They were found more in the bars and pubs of the time than in the churches or the synagogues. And then there were the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the moral, upright ones, the guardians of society. And what you notice in the introduction to this, this parable is something really interesting in verse 1 and 2. The tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. But what the religious leaders are doing in their hearts, they're actually close to him, but they're moving further away. They're actually grumbling and condemning him, saying, this man eats with impure sinners. And so that's the context where Jesus tells this parable, not to the sinners, but actually to the religious leaders. So I'm going to look at some of the responses of the different characters in this story and see what this shows us about God and our relationship with him. So if you've got a Bible, please follow on with me. I'm going to start with looking at the younger son's shameful response to his father. So the younger son, it says, and again, he's representing the tax collectors and sinners. He comes to his dad and he asks for his inheritance, which, as you should know, if you ask for your inheritance, you're basically saying, dad, I want you dead. I want your stuff more than I want you. And his dad, out of his generosity, gives him some of the property. And the very first thing he does is move as far away from his family as possible into a far country, which means a pagan land for a Jewish boy. He's out of sight, out of mind. And when he's there, he's partying. He's wasting his father's hard-earned property with his, until his spender lifestyle gets him in trouble. There's an economic downturn, famine hits, and he's at rock bottom. At least you think he's at rock bottom, because when you're at rock bottom, what do you do? Normally, you'd go straight back to your family for help, but he doesn't. Instead, he tries to independently fix it by himself, and he turns to a ruthless pagan employer who gives him work, that any Jewish boy would find the lowest thing possible working with unclean pigs. And actually, he gets to the point where he's so low that even he, the pigs are on a better status than he is. They get food. He gets nothing. And as he's in this situation, and even the pig food is looking attractive to him, suddenly the lights go on, and it says he comes to his senses it's that, that, that moment where he goes, what am I doing here? Here, like even in my father's house, the, most, the day laborers, the hired servants, they have more than enough bread. The word means to abound with bread. They're getting second and third helpings all the time with their father. But here I am far away from him. Am I dying with hunger? You see, the further away from his father he, father he went, he thought he was getting life when in fact he was getting death. And when he could have been experiencing abundance with his father, instead he gets shame. And he had chosen it. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced that whole thing of that, that how could I be so stupid moment. Anyone ever experienced that? Maybe it's just me. But, but like the wife who came to me, just, I don't know how you respond when suddenly you realize, man, what an idiot. But what often happens is at those moments, we often see our sin and then we don't we try to self-atone. See, the youngest son, what he does, he prepares his confession speech and he goes, Our God, I've I've sinned against God, against heaven, and against you. That is absolute honest confession. That's true. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's actually true because what you might not know is in uh, the culturally, in a Middle Eastern culture, if a son disgraces his father and his family... The family has every right to disown him or even to kill him. That's why you see in the Middle East honor killings. This culturally was, was what he, he was talking the truth culturally. He says, treat me as a, as a day laborer. Put me to work. Let me earn my way back into your good books. I'll pray more. I'll read the Bible more. I'll serve more. I don't know. I'll do whatever. I know I don't deserve good treatment at this point. Anyone ever felt like that? At that point, we see our second point, which is actually the father staggers his son with his response. You see, the only thing this son had actually got wrong was that he didn't know his father. You see, his father was different from every other father in the villages around. Because as the son gets up and starts the long journey back, it says while he was still a long way off, and I said that's a long, long way off, his father saw him. I don't know about you, just think about that for a second. If you see a speck in the distance, if you're going about your normal day doing stuff, do you see specks on the horizon? The answer is no, not normally. Only if you are actively looking out for something or for someone. You see, what you see behind the scenes, this father, every morning, he's been out pacing along his balcony or veranda or whatever he had, waiting for this son to return. And he sees him and he thinks to himself, oh, finally he's coming back. Guess I've got to forgive him and accept him like a good father, but I'm going to let him know all my disappointment with him. No, he doesn't. It says he felt compassion. That word literally means the churning of your bowels. I mean, that, that's deep. That's coming from right inside. And he runs and he embraces and he kisses him. Again, culturally, older men in Middle Eastern cultures don't run. It's undignified. It's shameful. It's like seeing the Queen of England sprinting down the road to try and catch a bus. You don't see that. It doesn't happen. But when this father, when he sees his son, his instant gut response is to break every social convention without a second thought for his own reputation. And he sprints towards his son. It's not grudging acceptance. It's not pain disappointment. It's overwhelming compassion. I can imagine the tears streaming down his face as he gives the son the biggest bear hug of his life. I wonder if we see God like that. 
You see, the son recovers from this, kind of being smothered, and, and he pulls out his rehearsed speech. You see, he, he hasn't quite understood his father yet. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. The, son cut, the father cuts him off and says, hey, and the servants who must have been following him, wondering what on earth has got into their master at this point, he tells them, bring the best robe. That's the sign of honor. The ring on his finger, that's the sign of authority. And shoes on his feet. Servants went barefooted. Sons wore shoes. You see, it's a sign of sonship. He's saying, I'm not accepting you back for anything less than what you are, which is my son. And the biggest cow, which they would have been saving for the yearly celebration because meat was scarce, they say, don't wait for Christmas. Let's like kill it now because this is better than anything. This is resurrection day. My son is alive. You see, the son thought he gets shame and he gets honor. He thought his dad would be distant, but he's looking out for him. He thought his dad would be grudging and maybe privately accept him. Instead, he gets a public celebration. What's he talking about? He's actually talking about the gospel message. Jesus is the one who doesn't just run out in shame. He dies in shame so that shameful people like us don't just get a, a pat on the back. Don't just get the slate white clean. We get honored. We get glorified, not by ourselves, but because he is the one who is glorious. You see, one of the things we need to repent of is not just the sins we have committed. It's actually the fact that we have got a wrong perception of our father. Some of us you may feel like a failure. I don't know what's been going on in your life. Maybe just your responses to your children. Maybe there's been anger. Maybe words that you've said to spouses, to colleagues, poor decisions you've made. And I don't know where you are, but I know that often in our hearts, we kind of, if you've been a Christian for a while, we know that God can forgive us, but actually we just wonder whether his forgiveness goes this far. Will he accept me? Will he delight in me? Is he disappointed with me? And the cross of Christ shows us in multicolor that God is way more generous, way more compassionate, way more longing and yearning for you to come back to him than you think he is. And if you're not a Christian, I meet so many people who think, I could never be a Christian because I'm not good enough. Look at all I've done. And the gospel says you're the prime candidate for God's love and to be drawn into relationship with himself. He only takes sinners. He just calls you to be honest enough to turn away and to turn around and to run back to your father with honest confession. You know, that Puritan once said, um, called John Flavel, he said this, As God did not at first choose you because you were high, he will not now forsake you because you are low. This is the heart of the father. So that's the younger son. Let's have a look at the older son. Because actually this story really is, is focusing more on the older son because he's talking to the religious leaders. You see, whereas the younger son initially moved away from his father and now returns, the younger son is much closer to his father. He's just out in his fields. He's doing his father's work all the time. He's a good son. 
And he starts coming back to where the house is, and then he hears music and dancing. He hears the sound of grace. And a servant tells him, this is the celebration of your father's return, uh, your brother's return. That brother who left you to do all the hot work in the sun, in that field, all these time by yourself, he'd just gone off and enjoyed him. It's that brother of yours that's come back, and now he gets a party. I don't know if you can resonate with him. I, I just feel this guy. I can feel his anger, the unfairness of all the work that guy's put in, and he, he's done nothing. He's shamed the family. I don't know whether you've ever felt like that, ever had a boss who you do all the hard work and he gets all the credit. Out of anger, jealousy, resentment, he refuses to go into the house. And in doing that, he's actually rejecting his dad. He's refusing to listen to his dad's request. That's actually dishonoring his father. And he says to his dad, look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. What does he see his father as? Does he see him as a father or just a master? You know, because when you only see God, who the father represents, God as a master and you just as a slave, just like, like a day laborer, you are always at some point when life doesn't work your way, angrily blame God, blame your circumstances, because you don't see him as anything other than someone who should give you what you're entitled to. You see, he's close to his dad physically, but his heart is miles away. And the interesting thing in this story is he's actually more like the younger brother than he realizes. You see, both of their relationships were based on performance. The younger son felt bad because his performance was very bad. The older son felt good about himself because his performance was very good. Both wanted the stuff of the father more than the father himself. The elder brother says, you haven't given me a party. You've never even given me half of what you've given him because a young goat would be less costly than a fattened calf. Do you see where his heart is? It's saying, I'm entitled to stuff. I deserve better than you. Look at all the performance of what I've done. Now give me what I deserve. And that attitude shapes the way he views his brother. He's no longer a brother. He's an issue. He's a failure. He's someone to reject, not someone to love. I think this is challenging. Isn't this many of us in church? When somebody hurts you, or when you, get, when you start comparing with how somebody else is treated, or somebody else gets a better deal in life, and you begin to feel that sense of resentment inside of you, you know, their salary, their, fa- their family, their kids just are so much more well-behaved than yours, their spouse, their job security, all of those things, whatever it is for you. And we always end, when we have resentment and unfairness in life, we're always pointing a finger at God. You see, older brothers are judgmental. Older brothers are defensive when they're criticized. They don't listen humbly to others. Their tone when pointing out mistakes in others is never gentle, but it's always critical and harsh. I wonder if any of us are like that. 
You know, the amazing thing in this story is how the father responds even to the older son, and he pleads with him. You see, for me, I often resonate with the younger brother. I feel like, oh, it's so compassionate, so gracious. But actually, the older brother I have issues with. I don't like religious, judgmental Pharisees. I always thought Jesus didn't like them either. But here, do you see the response of the father is the same as the response to the younger son. He comes out to him. That's disgrace. He shames himself. You see, it says he lowers himself by pleading with his son. That word pleading, that's what a lesser person begs a greater person. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, the servant pleads with his master to give him more time to pay off his debts. The father, instead of pure anger at his son, metaphorically gets on his knees and begs him to come. That's crazy. But that's actually what the gospel shows, that actually Jesus, in humbling himself from heaven to die on a cross, came not just for younger brothers, he also came for older brothers, to wake them up. That's why he says, to, in response, he goes, son, I want you to understand something. You're always with me. All that I am, am is mine. Sorry, all that is mine is yours. You see, what's the father doing? He's taking the focus away from the stuff and he's putting it onto the relationship. He's saying, if you get me, you get everything. So uh, do you want me for me or do you want me for what I can give you? Do you want me just as a sugar daddy? Is that what it's all about? Or do you actually want a deep, intimate relationship with me? You see, the father's less concerned about all we do for him, and he's more concerned about all that's going on in our heart towards him. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And actually, the most incredible thing is, he says right at the end, when people come back to me, wherever you've been, I have to celebrate. It's not an option for me. When this son came back, it was necessary because God gets joy in the relationship of having us with him. So where does that leave us? That's the younger son trying to be very bad, but actually he experiences grace. The older son, we don't actually know how he responds, but he actually experiences a father who is so gracious and is desperately wanting him back. How about us? Rediscovering our father. You know, I stood at the hospital bed of um, an elderly relative a while back, and she was dying. Everyone in the family was there. And if you were not there, it would have been a shame in the family. Everyone would have looked down on you. And so all the family members were there, but none of them were engaging at all with the, with the lady in the bed, who was still uh, able to function in some way. Everyone else was chatting to each other, just ignoring her. They all thought they were being good daughters or good sons or granddaughters or grandsons. They were physically close, but actually in their hearts, they were miles away. If you've been in church a long time, you know how to play the Christian game. We know the right answers. And the more likely we are to be older brothers in our lives, to be very devoted in reading scripture and serving in leadership and other things, but we fool ourselves 
that closeness to the things of God is the same as closeness to God himself. You see, those who are close to God will always do the things of God, but they're more concerned about the relationship than just the stuff you can get from God. You see, I realized this really recently, even for myself. I've just been really convicted. I realized that I've been reading the Bible, and I read the Bible every day. I love reading the Bible, but I realized I've been reading the Bible for information more than to commune with my Heavenly Father. I realized that actually when I heard a sermon or I read a Christian book where I thought, oh, I know this stuff about the gospel, Jesus died for me. Okay, just kind of move on from that. Give me something interesting that I really want to hear. That in my heart, what I was doing, I was saying, okay, doesn't fit the information category. Okay, let me write that off. And my heart was getting just distracted and dry. I wasn't wanting to let God speak to me. I just wanted to be informed. And what I saw was actually just during this COVID time, I was getting really frustrated that I couldn't do all the stuff that I thought I wanted to do. I don't know if you're like that. And I was restless, and I'd not seen the connection between the dryness of the soul and the restlessness of my mind and my heart in this period. And so as God convicted me, what he showed me is, you need to slow down and begin to start communing with me. Take a verse and just marinate in the scripture of one verse, and don't worry about all you need to know, but actually say, I want to know you, my Father. I want to know your love for me. I want to know you as a compassionate, gracious God who knows and he hears me right now in whatever circumstance you're going through. And for me, it's been one of the most refreshing, liberating times with God. You know, are you wasting your COVID? Let me tell you, don't waste your COVID. How are you responding to God's word right now? Because now is not the time for spiritual pause. Now is the time where God wants you to press in to know him. If you've got more time, God's saying, use it to get to know me. Because you see, hungry people, thirsty people, are people who know their need of God and want to run into him. Older brothers don't feel very hungry at all. You see... We know we're sinners in our heads, but we don't feel it in our hearts. We don't feel we've got to do a lot of turning, really. Sure, there's a few things to tick on the list. But we're not that bad as my colleague, my spouse, this person around me. But the interesting thing about older brothers is when you do fail, we, we have this, or even if you ask God to forgive you, you have this floating sense of guilt just at the back of your mind that in some way God may be disappointed with you that maybe you've not done enough to satisfy him. Maybe there's some resentment in your heart that actually your circumstances, your health, that, those things that you've been praying for and just haven't happened yet, and gradually in your heart it's just built up to harden you. And time with God and his presence and to enjoy him and in repentance before him has been a long way for your mind. Let me ask you, right now, who are you more like, the older brother or the younger brother? 
You see, younger brothers think they can find a more deeper, more satisfying experience of life outside of God's love. Older brothers think that God's demands are divorced from his overwhelming compassion and love. We know that God forgives us, but we don't think that God forgives us that far. Dane Ortland, in his uh, fabulous book, I really recommend it, Gentle and Lowly, he says this, The Christian life, from one angle, is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced by God's insistence with who he is. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory, now listen to this, perhaps greatest, Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, if you know the lavishness that God is longing for you to give a party of joy right now in your life, if you really get that, not not here, but down here. Why would you go into porn to satisfy yourself? Why would you, left with simmering resentment, which moves you away, why would you not run into forgiveness unless you, if you don't know the deep, amazing forgiveness of your father? Why would you just retreat into yourself and not be looking out for your brothers and sisters at this time, even though you're distant from them? Why would you not be pouring out your love for them, except if you didn't know the amazing pouring love of Christ towards you in your life? The reason why we do all of those things is we have not, we've lost sight of God's heart for us. Ortland says this again, he says, God's deepest disappointment is with your tepid thoughts of his heart. Christ died placarding, billboarding, putting in, in the sky before you today the love of God for you. So don't waste your COVID in running after other things. Last thing. If this is what God wants to do in us, how do we get renewed? How do we get spiritual life? If you recognize actually your heart is dry, you don't feel the joy of Christ in you right now. How do we get renewed like the younger son? It starts with you recognizing that light bulb moment, realizing your situation is more desperate than you realize. You know, those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven little, love little. So just to monitor where you are in your heart right now towards God, and we'll probably show you whether you've understood the depth of your sinfulness right now, and whether you've understood the depth of his grace towards you. But like the younger son, repentance is the gateway to abundance. It's the pathway to joy, knowing that waiting for you is not a disappointed, angry God you have to placate, but it's a God who is longing for you, for you to experience the joy of your true sonship and security in him. And he purchased it with his blood. You're his son or daughter. At our last elders' meeting, in Watermark on Tuesday, we came to the point of going, God, why do we keep forgetting to pray? You know, we should. If God is the God of the universe and prayer changes things, we believe that in our heads. Why do we not? 
we spent 20 to 30 minutes crying out for God to change our hearts, to show us our need of him, to revive our hearts. And let me tell you, man, it was powerful. We came away changed people, wanting to know Jesus more. Do you pray like that right now? Because if Emmanuel English Church, if even in your COVID where you are distant from one another, if you want to experience a move of God where the love of the Father, where your security and the sonship as his children, where the radiance of joy of knowing him is to flow out of you, you've got to get desperate in prayer saying, God, you've got to change us. We've got to run back to know who you really are. And out of that, your relationships will change. Your heart will become less defensive, more humble. You'll show grace more willing to others who make, willingly to others who make mistakes. Your own failings will not leave you insecure and desperate to prove yourself. But you'll be a people who are actually thinking, how can I love people even if I'm disconnected from them right now? Because you know you've got nothing to lose, nothing to prove. You've got a father who'll provide abundantly more than anything else you can imagine. Let's stop and pray. In fact, right now, I want you just to think for yourself, where am I with God? Am I more like an older brother or a younger brother? Am I running away from him? Do I think I'm close to him, but I'm just going through the motions? Some of you have been going through really hard times. Maybe it's in health. Maybe it's in work. And in hard times, we can often forget the love of our Father because we just think, He hasn't given me this stuff right now that I wanted. So let me just pray for us. Father, would you open our hearts right now? Forgive us for where we have our thoughts of who you are are shaped more by our, our own perceptions than who you really are. I pray that we would run to you this morning with hearts that want to, to press in to know you. Lord, where we may feel apathetic and maybe we've let go of certain spiritual disciplines, maybe we are just going through the motions, Lord, I pray that you would show us that that is a dangerous place, but you are a God who wants to call us out of that and revive our souls. I pray, revive us, Lord. Forgive us where we have wanted your stuff more than we've wanted you. Forgive us where we've wanted a comfortable life more than we've wanted to to know the love of the Father. Would you show us that our lives are not found in anything else other than the love of the gracious God who gave everything on the cross for us. Let that not just be a piece of information that we've heard a thousand times, but let that excite us again, I pray this morning. Just like their first love for you. Do this in our hearts, Lord. And let us be a community that's going to encourage each other with this so that we do not forget, but we remind each other daily of the grace that we have in you. Lord, change us, we pray. We need you. We need you. Thank you for your amazing love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.